Welcome to IPC's podcast, Global Electronics, The Art of the Possible. I'm John Mitchell, podcast host and president and CEO of IPC, the global association that helps manufacturers build electronics better through proven standards, certification and training, advocacy, and industry intelligence. Digital technologies are transforming manufacturing and creating the fourth industrial revolution in an increasingly interconnected and globalized world. We need to start talking about the policy, sustainability, network, and workforce adoptions integral to developing the factory of the future. We want to take a broad look at some of the opportunities and challenges of creating and running the factory of the future and talk one-on-one with the industry leaders and pioneers in manufacturing and management. Join us in exploring the factory of the future. I'm here with Sean Dubervac, IPC's Chief Economist. Uh, welcome, Sean. Thank you for having me. Great so to be here. Maybe you could share a little bit of your background. So I, uh, as you noted, joined as, as IPC's Chief Economist as we build out that industry intelligence component mm-hmm. and, and continue to be a resource, not just for industry, but more broadly can speak for industry and, and other circles. Uh, I have spent many years at the intersection of technology and economics and, and more broadly, how those two interplay. I spent uh, over 12 years as the chief economist for the Consumer Technology Association, and before that, spent a lot of time in tech and looking at how, again, the interplay between economics and technology. Great. So uh, today we're talking about uh, factories of the future and, and what type of uh, technologies or, or influences will, uh, will make those more of a reality going forward or maybe more of a challenge. And so we've got a few questions that will uh, hopefully spur some interesting conversation with us. Let me, let me just jump right in here. What do you feel are the critical elements or standards or technologies that will enable or define the factory of the future? I think when you look at the factory of the future, it's a lot about putting together dispersed pieces, dispersed components and elements, and sometimes that's uh, you know equipment or individuals and putting them together in, in a unique way. So my first book looks at this movement towards digitization, and that's kind of the first move as I see the, the factory of the future. It's starting to digitize and sensorize Everything. everything. Not just the equipment, but everything. And and the way I see it is all of this information is already there. It's just not being captured, collected, organized, structured. And that's... Yeah, leveraged in in a way that we can take advantage of. Yeah, and that's what we're starting to do now is is capture all of the data. And the next big step is figuring out what do you want to do with that information? How do you want to redeploy that information? And I, I think there's some really big shifts that are that are happening it isn't just about redeploying the data back into the, the manufacturing but I actually think that, that this data as a byproduct will become a product for many of these organizations that they'll sure. be and that's even happening today I mean so many how many companies are selling data right. to other folks right yeah. where they they're accumulating this so one of the challenges in that uh, that I see is if we're taking all different kinds of dispersed information or people or, or equipment or data, how do we make sure that it's consistent enough that we can make sense of it or machines can make sense of it? Yeah, I think that's a lot of what we're doing now. First is clearly creating mechanisms for moving that information around, being able to, to get access to it. So that's, if you look at what IPC is doing with CFX, that's a sure. big piece of that is creating the, the super highway for information yeah. in the factory setting. 
And then I think the next big step is trying to ascertain what information is, is valuable, useful information, and what information is just an externality, is just right. a byproduct that you don't necessarily need. Well, and the interesting thing is, is the external, the, those not needed products of today may turn out to be somebody else's sweet spot for tomorrow for some ancillary piece that we just haven't thought of. But yeah, and I, th I think we were in this period for the last decade where it was, as we digitize and sensorize, let's start to store all of this information. We're at a point now where, despite the fact that storage is very cheap, we are capturing more information than we really want to store for a long period of time. And so you're seeing things like AI at the edge and AI on the edge, uh -huh. which is all about using the information that you're capturing in real time to make decisions right at the point of, of that data capture. When you're capture. gathering it. Yeah, so right. you don't have to store it forever and have just massive amounts that exactly. you can't deal with. Yeah, so you don't have to store it and you can just use it, redeploy it, and then move, move on from there. I think to your point, there's probably still times where you're going to want to store that data because you may want it in the future. It yeah, may be useful. You just don't know. You don't yeah, know, yeah. exactly. And there may be a whole business about that, just saying, hey, we can encrypt data and push it off to somebody else that will store it for us, kind of like the, uh, what's the document storage companies, the, uh, the Iron Mountains of right. the world. You yeah. know, so you might have just the virtual Iron Mountains, if you will. And yeah. maybe they're already doing that. And I think though, a lot of companies are coming into this space to help figure out what the data could be, how it could be used, how it should be used. Because it, data isn't really the, the core capabilities of a lot of these factories, mm -hmm. and so they're bringing in strategic partners to really help make sense of it. Well, and there, there may actually be a business opportunity that is ancillary to their main focus of building products, in that as they collect this data, if they tag it appropriately, saying, hey, this is data that's relative to this, I have no use for it, but if I can push it off here someday, somebody might want to buy that data, and it may have use for them. So I, I, you know, I think the whole data thing is, uh, yeah, that's, that's a great point uh, about uh, it being critical. And then standardizing how we categorize it makes it useful. Yeah. 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 And then when you think about AI kind of coming in, machine learning coming in, right, it's finding those patterns in all of the data that are difficult to decipher just by looking at the data, dif difficult to decipher as a, as a human, if you will. But when right. we can apply some techniques to all of this data, we can hopefully so, learn new things. Learn new things, yeah. Things that we couldn't, patterns we just don't see. Right. Yeah, exactly. So this, is this next question is related to the data explosion that we're experiencing. And as we were saying, most companies don't know what to do with most of the data they're collecting today. Um, what are some of the ways that you anticipate manu the manufacturing supply chain will actually harness the data? Hey. So if you look at how they're going to use it now, I mean, first and foremost, it's about improving yields, right. uh, keeping, uh, extending uptime, reducing downtime. Efficiency. Yeah, efficiencies, productivity, uh, automation. So um, if you think about the, the way we're building these manufacturing lines, it's, it's about can we take data in one part of the process and feed it back into another part of the process. So that that, that part gets better. Yeah, so that part gets better and, and keeps everything, as, okay. you, as you talked about, humming along. But I think there is probably this opportunity to use that data in, in other ways. I think part of the challenge is, again, these companies aren't thinking about those, those things. Factories are really primarily thinking about finished goods and, and, right. and at least physical goods, producing physical goods and delivering them to a customer within a very tight 
time, time frame. Time frame. Yep. It's always much tighter than they want. Yeah. And so they're competing against these really hard deadlines and they're trying to get everything in. But I think that's where you'll start to, um, to see everything tied together a, a little more. I think of like a restaurant where you have the front of the house and the back of the house and they're not really talking to each other. So somebody takes an order at the table, they submit that to the kitchen, but that isn't necessarily, that POS information isn't necessarily being incorporated into inventory How, management yeah. or uh, marketing or some of these other things. So you don't know necessarily, the marketing department may not know what was the most popular item on a Friday night or what's the most popular item when it rains. But if they did, and exactly. suddenly, given conditions, they could change what they're doing. I also think of in the factory, way, another way they might be able to utilize the data in the factory is in terms of just optimizing the factory layout. I mean, so we have Definitely. robots, you know, and with this data, you could sit there and say, okay, as we improve efficiencies here, really, you can learn. It, it is still an efficiency game, but can you imagine uh, getting a floor layout coming out of your system saying, actually, if we change the layout this way, now suddenly you have more capacity in your factory so you can actually build more, you know, or, or double yeah. this, you know, through these pods. So, yeah, I, I think, think that's a great example. And you can, if you're optimizing even the physical layout of your lines, mm -hmm. then you don't need to expand your footprint when you want to expand your lines or your resources. Right. And so you're able to grow without having to... Uh, to put more, more capital, more capital in place. investment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Very good. All right. So as we talk about um, artificial intelligence and robotics uh, and those greater efficiencies that they can help yield in factories, they may also disrupt labor markets. So um, knowing this, what new skills do you think will be needed to run smart factories, or what should the industry be doing to upskill their current workers? Hey, clearly, there's skills that that will. Be needed and tasks that will evolve and change the, the workforce. I think first and foremost, it's a mind shift that's needed, it's a, a okay. different type of thinking about these processes. So to your point, or just a minute ago, where you're talking about the physical layout of the factory is going to change as we deploy this data in new ways, you need individuals who can think about those type of changes being possible. Yeah. yeah. As exactly. opposed to just saying, oh, I'm going to get this faster. Think, oh, my, I might change my thing. And, you know, you take that another one. Maybe I can attach these machines to the ceiling, you know, and now I've got more space yeah. you know, or whatever. So just, yeah, out-of-the-box thinking is, so we need to, uh, what, I, what I'm hearing you say is that we need to get, one of the, th the skills we need to train in is the idea to be more open-minded. Yeah, create. So if you, if you think about what's happening, we're automating routine tasks, which means we're left with, non-routine tasks, and non-routine tasks tend to require a lot of cognitive skills. Regardless of where you are in the income distribution, right. it still requires more you- More brain power. Yeah, more brain power to work- Creativity, what have you. Exactly. And so those are the type of skills that we're gonna wanna focus on are these ones that require a high degree of cognitive capabilities. And it, it's exactly, as you noted, it's creativity, it's out-of-the-box thinking, it's being able to observe a situation and and pick up some of the nuances. Yeah, innovate based on the, the facts you're given at the time because they aren't just always the same facts. Yeah, and and you think of there, a lot of jobs were designed to optimize situations. And if you think of a lot of professional services, accountants were designed to optimize your tax structure or mm -hmm. your investment allocations. 
So as we can start to automate some of those type of routine autom automation um, and, and optimization uh, skills, then we're going to need to look for more creative out-of-the-box approaches. Well, and, and, you know, it's interesting, the creativity, if you think back to how Henry Ford uh, took the idea of, you know, hey, we'll just do one job at the same time all the time. And, and that was an optimization at the time, but mm -hmm. maybe now that's exactly what's inhibiting some of that creativity is that, oh, all I can do is optimize this one job instead of thinking, now I need to think system-wise or, you know, productivity-wise, you know, yeah, it all in. The, it, more, the more factors you can pull in at the same time to, solve, to a problem also offers more degrees of creativity and innovation. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because if you look at electronics manufacturing, especially in the U.S., a lot of it is high mix, low volume, and so you're hurt by having to, to switch things up. So yeah. if there are ways, and that's a, that right now is a very cognitive uh, requirement. Oh, heavy, heavy cognitive task. Very good, yeah, excellent. So um, we're going to upskill workers by helping them become more creative and thinking out of the box. Are there any um, basic skills that you feel, or, or how do we, if we're going to um, disrupt the labor market, so say, let's just think about AI and robotics for just a moment here. Um, obviously, a robot's going to run 24-7, and uh, most workers are not. <laughs> so if we're displacing workers, uh, are there specific skills as this becomes more and more prevalent that, they, that you feel like or, or have any input on, on that people should be thinking about, oh, my job might get replaced, what should I be doing? Yeah, so when I look at what's happening in the world today, I see we, we talk a lot about the gig economy. And the, mm -hmm. this idea of the gig economy is that you have individuals that are coming in and out of the workforce, essentially, on a daily basis. They'll come in and out, and they'll do different jobs based upon any number of factors, mm -hmm. preferences, time of day, other activities that are happening in that environment. As we automate some of the things within a factory and we make that truly a smart, connected, automated environment, what you're going to end up doing is scaling that individual across the factory. So in other words, you'll be scaling individuals across more tasks. So in the way the gig economy has redefined the broader economy, I think mm -hmm. the gig, a gig worker will also redefine what's happening inside in of a factory. They'll have to do more things across the entire line or more things within that factory. Uh, so that's one. So it's, I'm, I'm not just a cog in the, in the wheel. I'm, the cog, I'm several cogs in the wheel. Yes, yeah. yep. You're going to be moving around and being very aware of all that data flowing in because there's still going to be a lot of things that will need to be done by a human that are best done by a human, and they're going to have to be able to rapidly shift between those different jobs. I also think that as as we move from digitization to datafication, that we all become data scientists. So that the job of the future, regardless of whether you're in HR for a manufacturer, you're an operator, uh, an engineer, it doesn't matter anymore. We're all data scientists. And so, so if you're going to take a night class at your community college class, learn how to understand and utilize data. Yeah, to just be to think about it, uh, to have a mindset that can can fully take advantage of the data that's available. Very good. All right, uh, so again, I'm going to shift directions on you here just a little bit. Uh, how can the industry support the idea of sustainable development, both green and long-term, uh, setting success in the long run in terms of workforce, technology investment, and infrastructure? So as we're 
rethinking what we develop in terms of sustainability. And then please feel free to work in the economic angle of this, you know, globally, because uh, uh, one of the concerns I have about this is, and, and we've heard this in, in a few of our other interviews, is, um, yeah, we all want to live in a world that's clean, you know, that we don't want to drink poison, we don't want to breathe poison, but uh, there's a motivation factor that is either customer-based or financial-based. How do we overcome those or drive those uh, in such a way that we actually be drive the sustainability up? Yeah, so I, I do think that from a demand side that the younger generation is, be, and this has been true across history, that mm -hmm. younger generations as they come into uh, the purchasing power uh, have a greater propensity to spend on things that are environmentally friendly and they become more okay. aware of scarce resources. And so uh, I think that's especially true with the generation that's coming up today. And you can just look at, you know, we're putting them right. on the cover of Time magazine. There's a really strong focus on being, ha having a zero uh, footprint. Zero and, environmental and footprint. And zero yeah. impact on the environment. And so you're seeing that across the board. I see it in automotive where they're talking about organic materials and vegan interiors. You see the, the move toward, you, you see the move. When you say that, I think, oh, it's edible. All right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, you see the move towards electric electrification across the board, and I think that's a, a move towards sustainability. And that now these are long shifts. We're talking sure. ten and twenty year shifts that that are taking place. So we're not going to see this sustainability driven happen by twenty twenty one necessarily, but we'll see the beginnings, and we're already seeing the beginnings yeah. of of the um, the buyers definitely uh, as they come up. You know, so most of our, our largest group right now, I think millennials have finally overtaken the uh, the, um, um, the boomers. And uh, and so now with that power structure, and they are in, in the purchase uh, zone of their lives. That's right. They're in their, the, the, the workforce. They're fully integrated yeah. in the workforce. They're now cr uh, creating, forming households. And so they're buying homes. They're buying vehicles. They're they're spending on... Or they're not buying vehicles. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and exactly. they're, they're spending on services. And so they're thinking a lot about the environmental impact of their decisions. And so I think you've got that happening on the demand side. You mm -hmm. also have uh, regulation across the board. You see it most pronounced in Europe yep. right now where they're really enforcing. China is also doing a lot yep. around environment. So I think that those two forces are going to really dictate a, a lot of the and help drive yeah. the customer requirements sure. either either at the end or at the at, at the regulatory side to make sure that we as an industry have to accelerate our sustainability efforts. Yeah, one of the great things about that is that you'll start to get to critical mass and that's when some of these economies to scale kick in right. and and that's what will really benefit manufacturers. I don't think manufacturers are opposed to any of this. Right. But just got to make sense fiscally. That's right, and yeah. and having volume will help the the numbers work. Right. For so them. if I'm if I'm a small manufacturer and there's a way for me to be sustainable, but it's going to drive 10% increase in my costs, that's going to sink me. I'm going to be out of business. Right. Whereas um, as larger manufacturers or some of these forces are felt and those things become more mainstream, now suddenly that cost of changing is not so difficult. Yeah. And, and in fact, in order to capture a piece of that market, you're going to move in that direction. Right. And so I think what you'll see is all of these forces will work together to, to push us in that direction. Also, the, the technology has improved. So if we think about 
moving towards uh, electric vehicles or, right. or you know, electric anything, really. They, Data through throughputs are going through the roof, and as 5G comes out, everybody's going to have an just amazing access to data. So if we can now collect that data, you run into privacy concerns, but collecting that data will also, I think, inform where we need to be doing things to be, become more sustainable yeah. as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think all, a lot of forces are coming together to define the next decade. Very good. All right, so last question. Uh, what do you think we as an industry should be talking about more but aren't? That's a great question. I, when, you know, when I'm, I'm here at Apex and looking at everything that's happening at Apex, and I see a lot of really great things. Mm-hmm. It's really awesome to see how the industry is growing. Uh, the, the things that I would point to, like being able to incorporate data into processes you're seeing happen, I think there's still an, an underestimation of how widely deployed sensors will be and, and how okay. impactful that will be. And, yeah. um, and so I think we're going to, you know, we need to even ramp up farther where we think data will be deployed and, and how we as uh, an industry can employ that data in our own individual businesses. So while we recognize it, we are not understanding exactly how groundbreakingly changing this will be in terms yeah. of the data collection as well as the use of that data. Yeah, and, and also what the data ends we up... We get it, but we don't really get it. Right. So, <laughs> so here's an example. The data ends up, and you see it with standards like CFX and other things like that, enables machines to, to more easily and more accurately talk together. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is all of a sudden, companies that might not have been able to work together very closely or very tightly because they had different machines speaking different languages mm-hmm. can now be more fully integrated within a, within a client's facilities. And so- Cross-industry sharing of information. Exactly, yeah. the collaboration and partnerships that, that are being created today are going to be much bigger and larger than we've ever seen. And so companies need to start thinking about, it isn't just building the best product, but it's also building a product that accomplishes things in conjunction with all of these other products from companies that might have been competitors in the past, and now we're partnering to create all new solutions and all new services for for our clients. Yeah, it's a whole different way of thinking. Yes, definitely. Very good. Sean, uh, thank you for giving us your time and insights. I really appreciate it and and helping us understand a little bit better what the factory of the future might hold for this industry. You can also find more information on the factory of the future and other electronics industry news at ipc.org.